0: Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. Have you ever been told, there are no wrong answers? That, usually classroom-situated statement, encourages people to be unafraid in sharing their opinions or ideas. But why would they have a fear of error to begin with? It is because, above and beyond any learned content, they have already culturally internalized that reciting predetermined results to an authority is the definition of accomplishment. Yet, we all know that every truly wrong answer gets us one step closer to a solution. So what happens to truth when one is protected from even the notion of error? Think of how No Wrong Answers eradicates Sherlock Holmes, as if to say, My dear Watson, when you never eliminate the impossible, everything that remains however probable, must be uncertain. This, one could argue, contains the last 40 years of the humanities in a nutshell. In finding out what we can't predetermine, which is many important things, wrong answers don't just exist, they are valuable. Unfortunately. In reacting against an educational tradition that makes people afraid of being wrong, a popular response has been to deny that anything wrong exists. And rather than addressing problems, this attitude has often made them worse. Developing or pursuing a successful method of inquiry is usually more profitable monetarily, and intellectually. This distinction is in large part what separated the rational thinking and practical results that followed from the scientific revolution from the centuries of dogmatic authority that preceded it. Before Copernicus was wrong about the earth moving in a perfectly circular orbit, it didn't move at all facts be damned. The way our civilization is tilting, with media siloing, climate change denial, anti-immigrant hysteria, and increasing political tribalism, it might seem as though we are re-entering a world where, once again, authoritarian allegiance trumps fact. But how many people are stopping to recognize how deep and broad the shift really is. This anti-fact trend, which so many see as recent and driven by the political right, began decades ago in the academic left, with post-structuralism and deconstructivism's advance of radical subjectivity and attacks on science. And if the academy itself was in conflict over science, why would the public not be? Those who currently prize pluralism and diverse cultural relativism are, in this 2016 U.S. campaign season, fighting against opponents who share the same epistemological home. They both ground arguments on a kind of truth that is socially constructed to the detriment of empirical reasoning. The student clashes with Republican partisans at campaign rallies represent a kind of cousins war. Even if one side is claiming science or fact, observe how battle is more and more drawn on the turf of appeal to emotion and allegiance. Both sides increasingly proclaim, we must stop them because they don't represent who we are. And when each side says the other wants to gag the opposition, that has become the only point Of mutually acknowledged truth. The more profound divide is not between these warring tribes that will certainly fracture, migrate, and reform over time, but between individuals of an older caste of often former rivals, improperly known as insiders, who look on, dumbstruck, As new partisans, who themselves are improperly seen as outsiders, prize ideology over principle and fact. In short, a case of optimates versus populares all over again. Utterly lacking, lost even, in all of the social networks, safe spaces, and creative culture work environments is the now old-fashioned scientists scholars or entrepreneurs desire to prove wrong and to be proven wrong as a means to success we bring these thoughts up at the outset of this the fourth and final part of our look into Walter Benjamin's 1936 essay, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, because it can be argued that, literally up to the day he died, Benjamin was a model for getting things wrong. At no point in the prior three episodes have we shied away from pointing out his errors nor the errors in how he is interpreted, implicitly before, but now explicitly stated, is that we too may be wrong. So, let that be decisively demonstrated, one way or another, while noting there are points at which there are still few wrong answers while the right one is as yet not obvious, the marker of an unsolved problem. In rounding out our analysis, expect to find all these three qualities called out, incorrect, correct, and unsolved. And so we go on. Benjamin's epilogue to Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction sounds a wrong note that can derail the utility of the essay if read too cavalierly. He states, in his historical framing, that the growing proletarianization of modern man and the increasing formation of masses are two aspects of the same process. In other words, mass media, mass consumption, mass production, and population increase are all signs of the coming socialist paradise. His main target, understandably enough, is fascism. And here, because he is operating empirically, Rather than dogmatically, he makes much finer observations. Fascism sees its salvation in giving these masses not their right, but instead a chance to express themselves. The masses have a right to change property relations. Fascism seeks to give them an expression while preserving property. The logical result of fascism is the introduction of aesthetics into political life. It had been clear to the point of obvious that once common political discourse had taken the form of persistently open street clashes, fascism was ascendant. The suspension of public reason was in great part achieved through the aesthetic manipulation of emotion and animal instinct. But then, the final words of the essay combine haunting prophecy with a ridiculously failed prescription to jarring effect. Mankind's self-alienation has reached such a degree that it can experience its own destruction as an aesthetic pleasure of the first order. This is the situation of politics which fascism is rendering aesthetic. Communism responds by politicizing art. Watch videos of nuclear bomb explosions while whispering that first sentence as a mantra if you want to induce insomnia. Regarding that last one, it bears no further counter argument than to quote British comedian Peter Cook, who, when founding his London nightclub in 1961, said he wanted it to do political satire, patterned after those wonderful Berlin cabarets which did so much to stop the rise of Hitler and prevent the outbreak of the Second World War. While the incorrect elements in Benjamin's essay, especially 80 years later, are the easiest to assess, they are not created equal. We will do Benjamin the slight courtesy of overviewing the most important concepts not yet contextualized by the prior three episodes before laying bare the point of his, revolving around architecture, that history has since revealed as most illuminatingly incorrect. Last episode. We left off with how Benjamin contended that mechanical reproduction eroded traditional values in art. One of the chief consequences of this was that a sense of unique intellectual distance, essential to aesthetic appreciation, was displaced by the machine facilitating images and works of art being brought near to the viewer by means of unbounded duplication. This process of distribution is amongst the key disruptive aspects of mechanical reproduction. The uniqueness of a work of art is inseparable from its being embedded in the fabric of tradition. As we mentioned earlier, uniqueness is central to the presence, or the aura, of the work of art. Aura that is cast across a stretch of time becomes tradition, closely bound to authenticity, and in the case of art that endures long enough, multiple traditions. The earliest of these, Benjamin claims, had often been a cult function, such as an idol or religious artwork. He hastens to add, though, that this cult need not be religious. The Renaissance, for instance, ushered in a secular cult of beauty. That regime of tradition came to a close with the advent Of the first truly revolutionary means of reproduction, photography, simultaneously with the rise of socialism. And here he gives a detailed instance of his earlier argument that the so called avant garde actually follows rather than leads technological and political developments. At the time, Art reacted with the doctrine of art for art's sake, that is, with a theology of art. The machine pushing art away from tradition created art for art's sake, which was, in his view, a reactionary retrenchment of cult values in the very movement that was taken by contemporaries and even most art historians today to be the birthplace of the avant-garde. If cult value and authenticity are being corroded, a new form of value rises to replace it, that of exhibition. Art almost always contains both. cult value is that of an occulted or esoteric practice of prized knowledge that the art is instrumental to. Benjamin wrote that cave art and other rituals of magic were excellent instances of cult value that only gained exhibition value later on to be more generally appreciated as displayed objects distinct from ritual or tradition. But cult value has not disappeared, only diminished. It survives today in, for example, how adherents of a lesser-known music group grow disenchanted if the band becomes popular. Exhibition value, by contrast, is what is gained precisely by that wider showing of the art, by the public appreciating it, profiting from it, distributing it widely as reproduction. Indeed, technical reproduction had such an influence upon art's relative relation to cult versus exhibition value that the quantitative shift between its two poles, turned into a qualitative transformation of its nature. To illustrate this, Benjamin notes that, in stark contrast to the cave painting, photography and film are viewed first as spectacle or entertainment, to his mind, in great part because the audience relates to the actor not eye-to-eye as on the stage, but from the edited perspective of a camera, and only after some time has passed and the spectacle has cooled does film acquire the social practices of cult value. Think of how the phrase cult film never means a new release, and you can see his point vindicated. By contrast, Cave paintings were cult while they were being painted and as soon as they were finished. Reinforcing one of his central themes, Benjamin states that through broad spectacle, it is inherent in the technique of film as well as that of sports that everybody who witnesses its accomplishments is somewhat of an expert. Here, we have the hope of great equality in the machine age restated with more than a shade of resemblance to Andy Warhol's later claim that in the future, everyone will be world famous for 15 minutes. But if the connection was not already clear at the time that Warhol said it, Further developments in technology have made it strikingly so. Benjamin himself followed his discussion of widespread expertise by saying that the distinction between author and public is about to lose its basic character. The reader is ready to turn into a writer. He was speaking of the interplay of production and reception created by letters to the editor in newspapers, which by itself supports Warhol's statement at a local level within the distribution area of the newspaper. Nowadays, though, with smartphones and YouTube, the process that these two men were observing has continued to expand. Regrettably, Benjamin was witnessing the development of increased access to means of production through the lens of communism versus capitalism. He claimed that Soviet films starring people playing themselves at work rather than actors was a great step beyond the West's subordination of film to capitalist interests, which he felt, denied, modern man's legitimate claim to being reproduced. Benjamin retained a narrowly focused desire to frame everything as a historical struggle between these two opposing forces, and we will further examine how this bias prevented him from observing at the time what has become clear to us in retrospect. Following an extended section contrasting the painter to the filmmaker and examining the relative public reception of each, Benjamin raises what at first appears to be an isolated issue. The exoteric exhibition value of film makes the same public which responds in a progressive manner toward a grotesque film, bound to respond in a reactionary manner to surrealism. In a logical though digressive and unusual overlay of surrealism and film, he begins to discuss the intersection between mechanical art And psychoanalysis. The recent sections had discussed the relation of man to mechanical equipment. At this point, the essay begins to discuss how, by means of this apparatus, man can represent his environment. A glance at occupational psychology illustrates the testing capacity of the equipment. Psychoanalysis illustrates it in a different perspective. The camera introduces us to unconscious optics, as does psychoanalysis to unconscious impulses. What this is actually describing, though, ends up being close to his erstwhile roommate Berthold Brecht's theory of verfremdungseffekt, that is, to the effect of making something unfamiliar through distancing. This is how close-ups or shots of objects out of context force us to consider the familiar in completely new ways. What's more significant, however, is that this is a new kind of distance. But Benjamin remains blind to it and does not call it out as such. The nearness of the age of mechanical reproduction is not yet total, and, tellingly, the new distance is one of personal reflection. And introspection. There is now distance within the familiar. And how this resembles that great iceberg of the unconscious may be what made him associate what is actually Verfremdungs effect with psychoanalysis. His next section deals with the impact of film upon the conscious mind, though he does not do the reader the favor of making this explicit. This part of the essay, section 14, is where Benjamin attempts to recover a sense for the avant-garde, but he appears to do it in a way that would conflict with his more basic thesis of art following technology. What prevents this potential conflict from colliding with his main argument is that he is deploying the language of the avant-garde to explain the influence of one medium upon another, rather than the interface between art and society. He places up front the central claim of the avant-garde that one of the foremost tasks of art has always been the creation of a demand which could be fully satisfied only later. A footnote points to a quote from Surrealist chairman André Breton, further reinforcing avant-gardist ideas. The work of art is only valuable insofar as it is vibrated by the reflexes of the future. Benjamin, however, dwells on surrealism's older sibling, Dada. The shock effects of collage, randomization, and the like were considered by him to be artistic And moral values in non mechanical art that the maturing medium of film would soon put at its service. As film, predating even radio, was the earliest instance of global mass media, it follows that Benjamin's next and final numbered section 15 attempts to come to grips with the masses or the public as a phenomenon in its own right. In our last episode, we remarked on the essay's observation that what was already apparent to 19th century statistical study was becoming transparent to 20th century artistic theory. The mass populace was gaining greater impact. Again. Sociological and scientific manifestations are observed as antedating and driving the artistic. This shift is homologous with Benjamin's observations of technical quality in reproduction hitting critical mass around 1900, and in the decisive polar shift from dominance of cult value to dominance by exhibition value. All of these transitions are portrayed near the end of the essay and revealed to hinge upon the express fact of an increasing mass of humans in the world. Stepping outside of thinking of this in a typically Marxist way as the dawning of the proletariat Simple demographic evidence that Benjamin alludes to in his mention of statistics is enough to help push these changes along. He summarizes all these transformations as follows. Quantity has been transmuted into quality. The greatly increased mass of participants has produced a change in the mode of participation. Characteristic to this new modality of participation is distraction taking precedence over concentration. This is, again, something we are already familiar with as a significant result of the role that technology plays in our lives. But Benjamin promptly takes a fascinating turn as his writing erupts into the claim that architecture has always represented the prototype of a work of art, the reception of which is consummated by a collectivity in a state of distraction. The laws of its reception are most instructive. So, architecture, mother of the arts, is landed prominently into the discussion of art for the masses. If it has always been perceived, mostly while in a state of distraction, how well it fits our current culture of multitasking and smartphone alerts. Benjamin praises architecture as the most enduring and permanent of the arts throughout history, not in the sense of individual buildings, but as an art form. Panel painting is a creation of the Middle Ages, and nothing guarantees its uninterruptible existence. But the human need for shelter is lasting. And thus, he completely sidesteps the controversy as to whether architecture is art or craft. For him, it is an art. And lambasting art for art's sake as he did, Benjamin probably considered, as did Gropius, function and craft as properly subsumed within the realm of art. Promptly presenting another binary distinction, he classifies the perception of architecture as dividing into the categories of touch and sight, which are elsewhere generalized into the categories of the haptic and the optic. These forms of architectural perception cannot be understood in terms of the attentive concentration of a tourist before a famous building. We must devote significant time to what Benjamin has failed to mention here. By including architecture in his discussion on mechanically reproduced art, and highlighting this point by mentioning touristic appreciation, he reveals by implication, although neglects to discuss, one of architecture's most exceptional qualities. Everything in this essay thus far serves to reinforce the singular and singularly difficult status of architecture within the machine age. A building is a physical object with a fixed location. At first glance, it retains all of the authentic, auratic, and present qualities of non-reproducible art. Our appreciation of it, as Benjamin mentions, is distributed between visual perception and physical experience, often in habitual, distracted settings. Even as industrial methods were adopted and loudly proclaimed as central to a new architecture, this fact of the singular, Fixed object remained. But does this mean that authenticity, genius, originality, and all of those other outmoded concepts were not somehow undermined by the introduction of standardized parts or factory prefabrication? Hardly. But in the case of architecture, The experience of the transformation is radically distinct from the other arts. Perhaps without realizing it, Benjamin's mention of the tourist brings the essential distinction to surface. The tourist cannot take the building home. He cannot take home the experience of the building. All he can return with is an image of the building therefore it is not architecture he values but photography or postcards the architectural industry itself is not immune to this the building becomes the model for a glossy magazine photo or these days a 3d model for a ted talk But this acknowledged transformation of architecture in the wake of media reproduction is not at all the most profound post-aura reworking of how we live our lives in it. Benjamin observed in this very section how the tasks which face the human apparatus of perception at the turning points of history Cannot be solved by optical means, that is, by contemplation alone. The space of architecture was, and still is, undergoing a fundamental shift. The building does not move. It is a singular building, and thereby has auratic presence. Yet, in much of post-industrial architecture, The standardized parts have moved to the building instead, and we ourselves move among these rationalized, standardized parts. Aura inevitably fades. To borrow from Chuck Palahniuk, every mint on the pillow reads, I am Jack's Motel 6 to fall asleep in one city and wake up in another can bear a chilling lack of difference. Architecture is not exempt from the consequences of mechanical reproduction, even when the spatial binary that Benjamin assigned to the other arts are, in its case, inverted. In visual art, The mechanically facilitated nearness involves the work coming to us as copies more easily, more often. In architecture, the erosion of originality and authenticity of place means that we go to the same architecture spread out over different locations more easily, more often. In that way, While the building as an object can retain a modicum of unique presence by the fact of its distinct location, our relational distance to these almost virtualized qualities or common forms becomes more level. The building standing in time and with presence raises questions of historical transformation. Benjamin was correct about contemplation not resolving all of them. Empirical observation borne out by time is a luxury that we have relative to him, as our descendants will have relative to us. Consider the masses crossing his threshold of great equality this quantity making the qualitative shift into machine-produced and replicated art. All of it was fairly new at the time that Benjamin was writing in. But what happens when time, that great auratic engine, works its force upon the arts? Benjamin wrote that the portrait was the focal point of early photography. The cult of remembrance of loved ones, absent or dead, offers a last refuge for the cult value of the picture. He depicted this as a resistance of fading aura. What he failed to observe was what we can now see more clearly over time, that what appeared to be resistance, was resurgence. Old photographs gain an aura with every fold and faded edge. Old technology, like an architectural ruin, becomes romantically useless, fossilized and disconnected from the ability to reproduce As it once was. This process is not unique to our time, but it is uniquely intensified in it. Roman imperial busts, dashed out as cheap copies, were relatively worthless when new and common, taken out with the garbage once a new emperor ascended. Today, they are prized antiques. It is a similar process with photographs, old film, and LPs. Time amplifies aura. With the benefit of eighty years since the writing of the essay, we see that the sense of the equalness of things we discussed last episode is otherwise than Benjamin had thought. Among the several mistaken notions in it, Benjamin is most usefully wrong on this point. If mechanical reproduction had made the objects equal, and despite the general term gleichartige being used, it is specifically objects that are discussed, then daring to inject market analysis into a Marxist essay, equalization of variety, type, and prices among similar things would occur, as it in fact did, as a phase of nascent standardization. Think of how the Model T was an early success, eventually blown off the market not by a more equal car like, say, a Volkswagen, but by the diversified offerings of Ford's own domestic competitors, different colors, different prices, different models. Today, go buy a toothbrush and wonder if the machine age left us greater equalness in objects or greater diversification. Fully apart from this phenomenon being judged as a good or bad thing, it is a bit of both, consider ridiculous toothbrushes on the one hand versus customized fit jeans on the other. The equalness of things was a transition long since completed. What remains, however, is another sort of equalness, a deep trend in the 20th century, a binary that Benjamin also did not note is the shift from object to relation. It is not that the objects retain increased equality, but that they have become more equally distant to us. Cost of objects aside, the Internet is a great leveler of access in this sense. Using literally patented one-click technology, Almost any consumer good or art object you could possibly buy can be brought near you. Everything is just a click away. This virtual infrastructure lays out the great libidinal superhighway. Our desires transfer in an instant. We may customize our personal and media environment to an extent greater than ever before. The newest technologies of just-in-time production and rapid prototyping have even lowered the cost threshold of craft production so that, on the higher end at least, fully customized one-off hand-worked marble sinks compete on price with the long production runs of designer models. In that sense, even the chain of production is shortening, drawing closer to the final consumer. So what exactly is this distance? How is it measured? It is obviously not physical, and despite rumors to the contrary, physical distance isn't dead, it's just shrinking, Following Benjamin's other observations of binary polar shifts and indeed several advances in contemporary physics, this metric is qualitative, not quantitative. It may not be a coincidence that popular trust in fact dwindles as we transition into an expanded awareness of what measurement involves. The new metric is a distance. Of the familiar, the same yardstick that was once used to gauge the effect, And the centrality of the personal subject, that is, yourself as an individual human, is what provides and reinforces the consistency of this measure. This opens the whole discourse that architecture did not begin to address until the 60s though we should note that yes across the dimensions of people's own perception the familiar varies while staying constant to the individual it's something as consistent and precise as green light at 550 terahertz Can appear completely different to two people. But even without quoting the merchant of Venice, we all know how these common yardsticks of the familiar translate. They are never true in every case, but in very many instances they are. This is why the qualitative metric occupies an overlap a middle ground between the subjective and the objective known as the intersubjective. It is exactly because architecture and design must address people simultaneously as individuals and groups that intersubjectivity and the gauge of the familiar become so valuable to it awareness of this metric opened up by the increased standardization and access of machine production is one facet of a wholly transforming sense of space qualitative measure is something that both designers and consumers must employ to step beyond many problems of alienation that confounded post-industrial production. Benjamin didn't discover these straits, but by foundering in an adjacent cove, his error led the way. There are wrong answers, and we need them. If you have been listening all this way to the end of such a densely packed four-part podcast about Walter Benjamin, congratulations and thank you. It was quite a journey for us, too. We also want to tell you how you can get more content more often from us. Visit our website at lapsuslima.com and click on the orange Patreon icon. This is where you can support our podcast with a monthly payment. You can send any amount, but we have patron rewards set at various levels between $1 and $20. And we're particularly excited about the new $2 rewards. For only $2 a month, that's $1 per episode, you get a transcript of each show for your archives hand, if you bring three friends to sign up at that same level, we give you the $5 benefits for free. What are those? Going forward, patrons getting the $5 benefits on up get exclusive access to members-only commentary episodes containing looks ahead, extra content we couldn't fit into the main show and all sorts of good stuff. Starting the Friday after this episode's release, our main podcast feed will contain regularly released short samples of the new commentary episodes. And because these come out on the Fridays between main releases, your $5 or $2 plus three friends just turned this show into a weekly podcast. You can wait for the samples to test it out, or go sign up right now to make sure you get the full Members Feed episodes ASAP. Either way, we'll be happy to know you will be hearing more of us soon. Every member makes a difference, and you will be helping us build even bigger, better things in the future. So enjoy, and thank you for listening.